This podcast is sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim. Hi there and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Scott Cates about his talk given at the 45th Critical Care Congress on Bleeding Management and Reversal Strategies for the Patient on DOAC Medications, New and Future Approaches. Dr. Cates is a Senior Staff Hospitalist and Medical Director for Professional Development and Research in the Division of Hospital Medicine at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Todd. It's a pleasure uh, to join this. I guess the the first place to start is with the alphabet soup that is the terminology around this subject. You refer in the title of your your talk to DOAC, uh, but there's a lot of synonymous uh, terms. Can you help us to understand what those terms might mean? Well, sure. So lots of different terms, as I sometimes call these. I call these the used-to-be-novel, not-so-new-anymore, non-vitamin K, direct oral anticoagulants that are target specific. But that would be an incredible alphabet soup. I think it's really come down to sort of two nomenclatures. One is the NOAC that has evolved now to non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants. I prefer the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis terminology of direct oral anticoagulants. And one of those reasons is, is there's a couple of case reports that the abbreviation NOA AC, at least in the United States, was taken as no anticoagulation, and there were several patients that had atrial fibrillation discharged from the hospital that subsequently had a stroke. So we think from a safety standpoint, DOAC probably has some advantages over NOAC. Scott, what sort of agents fall into those categories? Yeah, well, there's four right now, and, of course, they're they're approved variably through different countries around the world. But the first one was dabigatran, which is a uh, direct thrombin inhibitor. And then the next three are 10A inhibitors, and they are in order of at least FDA approval, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban. Now, they've obviously become very popular in the community in recent years, uh, probably as much as anything for their ease of use. Are they justified in in this sense? Are they as um, effective in producing clinical results as they might seem? Yes, uh, they are, and I think there's a couple of advantages, and that's mostly on the bleeding end. If we take as a class or a family and put all four together in a systematic review, certainly in nonvalvular atrial fibrillation, there's clearly a reduction in intracranial hemorrhage, in fact, reduced by 50%, and that was seen in each of the individual four trials, and when we pool that, it comes at a having of the rate. So I think that that is really a step forward, although the absolute uh, risk reduction is fairly small and several hundred patients are the number needed to treat to prevent that harm. But I think from a critical care standpoint, and certainly from a neurocritical care standpoint, that is probably the most feared complication that we see from the anticoagulants. On the venous thromboembolic uh, side, particularly with acute uh, treatment, the American College of Chest Physicians is now recommending them over vitamin K antagonists like warfarin, and I think that is because all of the studies had some decrease in bleeding. 
whether it was major, clinically relevant, non-major, or any bleeding, but that signal is there across the board for a reduction in some bleeding in VTE, which I think garnered that guideline recommendation earlier this year in January of 2016. Scott, why are they more safe in that sense? Why is there a reduction in complications but a a seeming increase in, in efficacy? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of theories out there from the intracranial hemorrhage, the one that I hear most, and again, it's just theory, there's no proof on this, is maybe the warfarin and the vitamin K antagonist actually use factor seven. There's a lot of factor seven in tissue factor. That's what sort of kicks off the clotting cascade. Obviously, lots of tissue factor in the brain. So the theory is maybe decreasing factor seven with warfarin might have that ability to give more bleeding from warfarin than it is from drugs that hit lower down in the clotting cascade that are not requiring tissue factor as much i.e. inhibiting thrombin or 10A. But again, just a theory, but it's clear from the clinical trials that this is true. So one of the purported benefits, obviously, is the less heavy reliance on monitoring of efficacy, such as routine monitoring of INR. How are these drugs monitored in terms of their efficacy? Can we tell when when they're overdosed and underdosed, or is that not necessary? Well, I don't think that it's necessary. It's an interesting concept. For 50-plus years, we all were lamenting that we needed anticoagulants that didn't need monitoring, and as soon as we got them, we asked how to monitor them. So I think it's very important that the usual prothrombin time, the PT, the INR, the PTT, those aren't really good at saying what's going on with the drug. I think from a monitoring standpoint, probably the most important thing we do is not want to monitor, i.e. see if the patient is taking their medication. I think what we want to do is that we want to measure when we have critical issues, i.e. when can the patient go to surgery and they're not anticoagulated anymore, or in the bleeding patient, do they have enough anticoagulant on, do they have any anticoagulant on board and do I need to pull out and use a reversal agent? With that, with the bigotran, if the PTT not the prothrombin timer INR, but the PTT is absolutely normal. There is probably, and I'll emphasize probably, not important levels of anticoagulant on board. However, that is not 100%. And the best test for dibigatran would either be a dilute thrombin time or the ecron clotting time. The problem with the ecron clotting time is very few hospitals have it available. It literally uses snake venom to perform the test. For the 10A inhibitors, at least with rivaroxaban, a normal prothrombin time means that we probably don't have important amounts of uh, rivaroxaban available. That's even less sure with a pixaban and a doxaban. And there you really need to use a 10A assay. The problem is, is that those 10A assays 
need to be calibrated for each of the three 10A um, inhibitors. And usually most uh, hospitals, I know my hospital doesn't have it calibrated for each three. We have one calibrated for low molecular weight heparin and there's just starting to become some literature that suggests that maybe that 10A is good enough to say that we don't have important 10A inhibitors, oral 10A inhibitors available. But in the end, I think it's really tricky. Pragmatically, what I do is that if I have a patient on dabigatran and I need to know that there's no dabigatran available, I'll keep getting a PTT until that uh, is normal, and then I will suggest in my consult that we're likely, but not guaranteed, don't have important levels, and I'll do the same thing with the prothrombin time with the 10A inhibitors, but there's a little trepidation in that consult. What about in the circumstance where you're resuscitating against point-of-care measures? So, for example, in the hemorrhaging patient and trying to resuscitate and correct abnormal coagulation, those sorts of bedside testing and even going as far as things like thromboelastography, how do they measure up in the setting of somebody on a DOAC? Yeah, not a lot of literature that I've seen uh, to date. So I don't see right now that the tag can be used to say whether there's important amounts of any of these anticoagulants on board. Of interest to many of us in critical care environments is how the pharmacology of these agents change in critical illness, particularly in the setting of renal or liver dysfunction. How are they influenced by critical illness? Yeah, well, I think you're exactly right. The critical illness, the biggest issue is with the renal dysfunction. Dabigatran has 80% is eliminated through the kidneys. Apixaban is 25%. Rivaroxaban is about a third. And adoxaban is about a half. So I think we have to look at that, and if the kidneys are going bad, the half-life of these drugs are going to uh, stay on board. I think that's really important for the patient that comes into the ICU. They now are in acute renal failure, let's say from sepsis, yet they have recently taken one of these agents. I think understanding where the renal function is is going to give us an idea of how long they're going to last in, for example, dabigatran, which is the one that's eliminated mostly through the kidney, the half-life in end-stage renal uh, disease can go up to around a couple of days. So you know when you're planning your procedures that you're going to have drug on board for a while if the patients have completely shut down their kidneys. Now, in your talk, there was a point that was reinforced several times through the various speakers, and that was who needs to be reversed and uh, in what settings reversal agents would be used. Have you got any guidelines for, for listeners on that point? Yeah, and I think it's really sort of a clinical common sense. Obviously, the bleeding patient, and I understand that if a patient is bleeding so much on an anticoagulant that they end up in an ICU, that is probably a bleed that we're going to want to reverse. My caution always is in the patient that comes in to the emergency room or is not in the ICU but in the hospital with that GI bleed that is 
fairly slow. The patient is completely stable. I really caution folks not to give a reversal agent, particularly a reversal agent that can be prothrombotic, like a prothrombin complex concentrate, and not to use that and just watch that patient monitor and support them. As an example, a patient that had a pulmonary embolism a couple of uh, months ago and now comes in with a GI bleed, and if they were on a 10A reversal and the GI bleed was stable, I really think that we have to not give a drug whose job is to cause clotting, a PCC, and give the patient another pulmonary embolism where we could have just rode out and supported with a couple of units of blood and let the drug go away in the GI bleed. I think that's a little different, and the European Society of Cardiology actually makes a point of this. In their updated guidelines, they are saying now if you have a, quote, moderate bleed, if it's with the bigotran, you can probably give the reversal agent because that's an antibody now. It's specific to the bigotran, and it is not designed to cause clotting. It's just designed to take the anticoagulant away. But they reserve using prothrombin complex concentrate for the 10A inhibitors until you have, quote, severe bleeding, again, because now you have to weigh the risk of controlling the bleeding possibly controlling the bleeding because we don't have good studies on whether the PCCs work in these drugs currently versus the, the known increased risk of uh, thrombosis with giving a PCC. Now, before we get to the exciting bit of reversal agents, you did also in that talk refer to uh, the fact that reversal agents were just one component in the armamentarium of the clinician. What are those things that we should be considering before we get to that point? Yes, I, I, I've seen this a couple of times now where every, the patient is um, bleeding. Again, a GI bleed is a nice example. The patient is bleeding and everyone's running around figuring out how we're going to make the anticoagulation go away. And we're sometimes forgetting to see if we can't do some therapy. So calling in the gastroenterologist for a, um, for a scope. I once had a call to a gastroenterologist. The patient was having hematemesis. They said, why do you want me to come in and scope them? Don't you know where the blood's coming from? I said, yeah, I got the blood's coming from the upper GI tract. I don't need a diagnostic scope. I need a therapeutic scope. I need to see if you can't control, do local measures to control the bleeding. So whether we do that with a scope or whether we do that in interventional radiology or whether we have to go in and do that with surgery, you have to control the bleeding. As a friend of mine, Charlie Pollock, who's an ED doc, at uh, Thomas Jefferson says the reversal agents don't plug holes in blood vessels and we still have to control the bleeding. Now the intensivist in me obviously wants to dialyze everybody so are there extracorporeal techniques for removing any of these agents? Yeah, so that really uh, was a uh, big issue when dabigatran, which is the first of these agents, came out because it's it's very little protein bound, so it's amenable to dialysis. And so folks were talking about that. I think the pragmatism of bringing in a dialysis crew in the middle of the night and putting a catheter in an anticoagulated patient that is that sick has all of its challenges. I think that argument is complete gone away.
away now with the antibody to uh, dabigatran. The other three drugs are fairly protein uh, bound and so they're not expected to be dialyzed at all. So I think dialysis sort of has gone away because dabigatran was the only one that was a candidate for that and we now have the antibody. Um, and I know most hospitals, not all, but most hospitals in the U.S. now have at least one dose on the shelf. Now we get to the specific um, pharmacological interventions that are possible, but firstly with the the more general hemostatic type drugs, what sort of things are available in our armamentarium to tackle this problem? Yes, so so we have either three-factor prothrombin complex concentrates, four-factor prothrombin complex concentrates. The four factors have the addition of uh, seven, factor seven in it. We have those in the non-activated, which I just mentioned, or in the activated form, which is FIBA, factor eight inhibitor bypass activity. And then what we have is we have activated factor seven. Most of the work has been done around the three and four factor non-activated PCCs. There was a little bit of work that was done using FIBA with the Bigatran, but I think that that argument has gone away now with the antidote to the Bigatran. If we look at a couple of uh, guidelines, most recently the European Society of uh, Cardiology that came out in 2016, or a guidance statement by the AC Forum that came out in early 2016, both of those are giving a nod to four-factor prothrombin complex concentrates for the 10A inhibitors now, and remembering that they are prothrombotic. And I think from a practical standpoint, that is mostly what's used for warfarin reversal now, certainly in the United States. I know in the U.S. we've only had that four-factor PCC for about three years. Many parts in the rest of the world have had it for well over a decade. So I think that probably makes sense. We've been doing that with warfarin for a while, and I think there's something to simplicity since we don't know for sure if one is better than the other, and we have very, very little human data, even in normal volunteers, and virtually no human data in bleeding patients. I like to make it easy and then just use four-factor PCC for warfarin and 10A inhibitors and use the antibody for dabigatran. Now we come to the specific reversal agents, and I'm going to leave it to you to pronounce them because I don't dare. Um, What is the role of specific reversal agents in this process? Yeah, so so very good. So you're right. I dare use Cizumab as a humanized monoclonal antibody to dabigatran. I think that it's important to know that it was built just for dabigatran, like all antibodies are, so we can remember it. I've had some uh, folks ask me if we can use uh, I dare use Cizumab for patients on 10 A's, and of course we can't. So that I think is fairly straightforward. The idareucizumab lasts for about 24 hours. I think as we cycle back to the renal function that we talked about earlier, dabigatran is extended half-life with renal dysfunction because 80% is eliminated through the kidneys, but the antibody is also. So it's interesting that as the renal function goes down, the antibody will stick around a little longer also, as is the drug, so they sort of match up uh, nicely. It's, uh, at least in the FDA, 
FDA labeling, you give five grams, and then you can repeat at 24 hours if necessary. I think we have to remember that dabigatran is, the antibody stays in the vascular space. The dabigatran is in both the vascular and non-vascular space. So you can see occasionally the effect of dabigatran, the anticoagulant effect, uh, creep up after about 24 hours as drug is moving from the extravascular to the vascular space. And so you can repeat it 24 hours and there's a little bit of data that shows that that is safe to do. The next one is in Dexanet Alpha. This is in um, active study right now. There's a, a large clinical program going on and a study in bleeding patients called the Anexa 4 uh, study. The Indexanet Alpha was just reviewed by the FDA in August of 2016, and uh, there was a request for more data, so that is still ongoing. I don't know when FDA is going to take a look at this, and I'm not up to speed on the EMA or the Australian authorities, et cetera, on when they are going to review um, this drug. That's an interesting molecule. It's a 10 a decoy, so it looks like 10A, but it can't stimulate the clotting cascade, and so it tricks the um, rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban into attaching to it, and then it is eliminated, so it pulls off the um, anticoagulant from 10A. Um, it has to be given as a bolus as well as an infusion. We have a couple of papers in the New England, one in December 2015 and one in 2016 that is showing the efficacy of uh, this drug, and we're just uh, waiting for this. I'm hopeful that we get this sooner than later because it is a huge unmet need. Because it's such a big unmet need, it's been, quote, fast-tracked through the FDA, and we'll uh, have to wait and see if and when we're able to get this reversal agent. The last one is really hard to uh, pronounce. It's seriparantag. This is being developed as a universal antidote. It uses a completely different uh, mechanism than the other two, but it is targeted to not only dabigatran in the 10A inhibitors, but heparin, low molecular weight heparin, and fondaparinox. But that drug is several years behind the other two in development, so we'll have to watch how that uh, comes uh, forward, but I would expect that that drug is several years away from being commercially available. Scott, what are the role of uh, the prothrombotic agents such as tranexamic acid in managing overdose from these types of uh, agents? Yeah, I don't know if there is. I've, I have seen a, a little bit of uh, literature. I haven't seen much yet, particularly looking at this as a reversal agent. I know that sometimes if I have a patient and they're really trying to die in front of me, I'll throw everything I have. If the kitchen sink came in an IV form, I would infuse that also. Um, so I don't know right now. I think it's not unreasonable. I 
think where it, it, it what's fascinating to me as I look at some of the surgical literature, particularly in orthopedics and, and, and now in um, cardiac surgery, where we're looking at less blood loss if we're using that, I think in those scenarios where we already have literature that suggests that we can use this and it decreases blood loss, I would really be using transexamic acid in the operating room in one of these patients, particularly if I was going to the OR and I was not quite sure whether all the anticoagulant was gone because of I didn't have the specific test like a dilute thrombin time or a 10A assay that was calibrated to the specific drug. Scott, everything comes at a cost. Everything's a balance and a trade-off. Um, so clearly there will be complications of reversible, but how real is the issue of thrombosis after administration of these agents? Yes, hard to tell, and frankly, we don't know, at least with the PCCs. With the PCCs right now, there's a couple of nice reviews, one by Marcel Levy for uh, Activated 7A, and one by Francisco Dentali for the PCCs a couple of years ago. But those were done across a wide variety of, um, of bleeding. Most all of this was warfarin bleeding at the time, and there's a, a real risk of uh, thrombosis. So I think that that's what we always have to be very um, cautious of. We don't have any sort of human studies, big studies that have used those across the board because this is a reasonably unusual complication. There's not a lot of these patients come into a specific hospital. In fact, if we look at, I don't want to say the struggles, but the number of sites that we have needed for the idarucizumab and the indexinet alpha studies. There are hundreds and hundreds of uh, sites, and with that, they're putting in a couple of patients a month into those uh, studies because I guess, fortunately, there's not a lot of patients that come in with these big, awful uh, bleeds from the anticoagulants, but it makes it hard to recruit. I don't think that we'll ever see a study with the PCCs. Well, certainly it won't get fired up until we see if indexinet alpha is approved or not. If indexinet alpha is not approved, then I think we might uh, see some of the manufacturers of the PCCs or governmental funding agencies uh, look at those studies. Scott, the other area of some contention is in restarting these agents. How long does it take to restart anticoagulation and reach therapeutic levels after the risk of bleeding subsides? Right, so if you're going to use a DOAC, you're at full therapeutic level within a couple of hours after the patient takes the medication. So unlike warfarin that took four, five, six, seven days to get uh, therapeutic. I think the real key is, is the specific timing of when we should start that. So we have some nice studies all of it is from warfarin. But we have a, a, a nice uh, study several years ago by uh, Karishi who showed that the timing of patients with atrial fibrillation and GI bleeds 
where sort of the sweet spot was. And starting prior to seven days seemed to cause a lot of bleeding. So, so the sweet spot for bleeding was after seven days, and the sweet spot for thrombosis was within 30 days. So I'm recommending that we restart at least an AFib with a GI bleed somewhere between seven and 30 days. Um, we know that you, not only are the thrombotic complications higher, but actually mortality is higher if the patients are not started. Now, let me be, give a big caveat to that. These were observational studies and not randomized studies, and we understand that sick patients that you're really reluctant to start an anticoagulant, the sicker patients die more than the less sick patients, although they did propensity score matching, et cetera, to try to even out those uh, variables that it still is observational. But I think that most of us now in many studies now are seeing that the starting point should be I want to restart the anticoagulant at some point. If we look at both the indexinate alpha uh, study and the idariocizumab study, there was a reasonable 5-10% of thrombosis um, that happened in those patients. It's interesting in, in the idariocizumab study, all of the recurrent thromboses were in patients that didn't restart anticoagulant. So it's not looking like the idariocizumab caused a clot. It's looking like the lack of an anticoagulant getting restarted was probably the factor that caused the clot. And we saw the same thing with indexinet alpha. Of all of the recurrent thromboembolic events, only one of those patients had been started on therapeutic anticoagulation. The rest were not. I think the bottom line message is, is after a bleed on an anticoagulant, the patient still had a reason to be on an anticoagulant, and we have to not make that an absolute they bled, ergo they can't be on an anticoagulant. You should be thinking about when can I start, not if I can start. Scott, thanks very much for guiding us through this complex and ever-changing field. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Okay, thank you very much, Todd. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. This podcast is sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.